Hi. Hi. I'm so excited to preach. After being gone last week with the uh, combined worship gathering, it feels, I don't know, special to be back. Now, when you hear the terms theology or theologian, what are some things that come to your mind? Theology, theologian. Okay, academia, studying God. Okay, yeah, old bearded white guys. Chris, <laughs> you're very kind, and, but I'm not that old or bearded. <laughs> yeah. I think what I was looking for is some of the things that you were saying, that sometimes we get this idea that theology is this abstract, heady, and, and impractical field of study. Theologians must be obscure scholars with long beards and ornate robes, and they live in a castle like Hogwarts, you know, and stuff like that, with the philosophers, right? Just like Ryan, he looks just like that, doesn't he? And while there are some brilliant and obscure theologians out there, and yes, some of them do wear fancy robes at graduations and stuff, theology at its best is anything but impractical. As J.A. Packer is fond of saying, theology is for doxology. That is, the purpose of theology, which is the study of God, is doxology, which is the giving of worship and glory to God. So in a very concrete sense, there is nothing more important as a human be- uh, to a human being than having good theology. And let me just make a case for why I just said that. I'll say that sentence again. In a very concrete sense, there is nothing more important as a human being than having good theology. Here's why. You're made in the image of God, right? You are made in the image of God. If you don't know what God is like, how are you to know who you are supposed to be like? How are you supposed to know what life is about? Or how are you supposed to understand what the good life is? You were made for a relationship. The scriptures teach this. How how are you to know what a healthy relationship is if you don't know the living God who is a living relationship? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You were made to be an agent of God, his co-regent, his representative agent, working for the good of others and the care of creation. How will you know what type of work to do, or if your work is pleasing to God, if you don't understand how God views creation or how God views work and worship and love. So you see, theology matters to us in the most practical of ways. It helps us to know who we are in light of being God's creations. And the reality is that every single one of us is a theologian. We're always doing theology. We're always making assumptions about who God is and who we are and who other people are. We all make assumptions, inferences, deductions about God based on all sorts of information from personal experience to science to scripture and tradition. Good theologians, I know I said everyone is a theologian. There's just a lot of bad ones. But good theologians know what sources are most reliable. Scripture trumps experience. The creed should hold more authority than popular movements in contemporary culture. And the best theologians not only know God well and know him correctly, but they're also able to communicate those things to the average people like us. I'm not sure it's fair to say that Jesus was a theologian because that would mean that he was studying himself. 
But in his incarnate career in the first century AD, no one was or ever has been as effective at communicating who God is and how he relates to his people and his creation. And one of the most effective teaching techniques that Jesus used besides his actions were the stories that he told. And maybe the jewel of all his stories, the crown of all his parables, is the one that we get to read together tonight. So would you stand if you're able as I read Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said... A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him out into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, "Uh, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I can celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, child, you've always been with me. And what I have, all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live again. He was lost and he's been found. Lord, thank you for this amazing story, this parable that expresses to us so many things, not least of which how it expresses really good theology about who you are, Father. As we work through it together, I pray that you would help it to penetrate past our minds and into understanding, Uh, but Lord, help us to know it deep in our hearts, how you feel about us and how we can see ourselves and other people. Amen.
the parable is informally been known for a long time. I don't know how long, actually, as the parable of the prodigal son. But as you've probably noticed, there are two sons in the story, and they're both quite lost. There's the story of the younger son who goes to the distant land. We focused on him two weeks ago when we started this series. There's the older son who is in his own sort of slavery, and we're going to look at his life next week. But there's one character that spans both of the sons, and that's the father. He's in every part of the story. And it's my contention that I think the point of the parable isn't necessarily about the prodigal sons, but about the father. It's telling us what the father is like. And it's with that emphasis I'd like to proceed. Jesus is teaching us theology when he tells this parable because he wants us to see that the father in this story expresses the same kind of love and dignity that Jesus' father, our heavenly father, has for us. In order to appreciate the character of the father, we need to understand a little bit more about ancient societies and how families in those societies worked. Towns were typically small. And they revolved around families. Wealthy families held larger plots of land and estates. And they not only supported their own relatives, but they employed um, all kinds of servants and help and all kinds of people. And many of those servants lived in the family estate with the family, ate with the family, and were part of their care. And so these few families for each of these towns actually formed the economic foundation for the whole village. But these families weren't just important because of their economic impact, they also served to enforce the social and religious standards. And at the top of each of the main families, let's say there are four per village, just for uh, argument's sake, at the top of each of these four families was one called the pater familias. You can say that, pater familias. Yeah, that's a, that's a Roman term, a Latin term, that is a pater is father, familias, father of the family, the head honcho, the, usually the eldest, the eldest competent male, like uh, senile people usually were pushed in a corner a little bit. Okay, so, and, and these men were tied to a social code, and even though they had wealth and influence, they were actually restricted, in a sense, to certain customs and rituals. There were certain ways that these men were expected to act, and there were certain actions that they were expected not to perform. And one of the oldest uh, social rules was that people learned to have honor and respect by honoring and respecting the potter familias. It was like every day you got to practice the social code of honor and respect by the way you treated the potter familias. It was against the law. And this is, it's against the law. In these, in these societies to disrespect the potter familias, especially in public. So to do so wasn't just an insult on a particular person, but on the whole society, right? It's like in the 50s, if someone would say, uh, I don't like baseball. What, you're not an American, you know? It's like, sorry, baseball people. But it, it's, it's like that, you, you, you can't go against the code. And so to, to disrespect the potter familias was to go against everything that the village stood for, all right? So when the younger son asks for his inheritance before his father has died, he's in a way saying, I wish you were dead already. I would rather cash out of this family and get out of this town than be in relationship with you. It must have been hurtful to the father in the first place. Like, I can't imagine my kids saying that to me. But it was also a wholesale rejection 
of the family and the town and their culture and their religion. They expected the response. Uh, so, if you, so if Jesus is telling you the story and you're a first century Jewish person or Roman person, the expected response, without a doubt, that you would think would happen next is that the father would have drugged this boy out into the public square because nothing is private in those, in those days, okay? The servants are talking. They've overheard this. They're going to tell the other servants. It gets around the town. So now this family's name and this paterfamilias's dignity is on the line. He has to bring the boy out into the public, and he has to declare what the boy has done, and then he should strip the boy of his family robes so that he's just wearing undergarments, and then he could beat him or cast him out, or in some extreme cases, the law say you, even capital punishment, but that, we don't know that that's often carried out, okay? But the point is that there would be a public shaming of this boy and a distancing of him so that the family's name would be protected and the name of the village, honor, is maintained by that course of action. Now, as you know, that's not what happened in this story. The father divided up his estate, and the text says, literally, he divided up his life. His estate was a farm, and that farm would feed him and clothe him and provide excess for him to barter with in town. And so when he's giving part of his portion away before he's actually dead, he's literally giving the son part of his life. And the younger son goes off to a distant land. Meanwhile, back home, the father has endured shame from onlooking families. He would be the talk of the town from the other leaders to the lowliest servants. With that in mind, consider how radical it was that the father allows the younger son to go freely with his part of the estate in the first place. And consider how radical is the next scene when the son returns with his tail between his legs. See, the stage is now set in Jesus' tale uh, for an ancient hearer to think this is the moment where the father comes to his senses and has the opportunity to erase the shame incurred upon him and his town. Here comes the younger son, starving, half-naked, shoeless, penniless, shameful, and utterly humbled. This would be a good time for the father to gather the town and to teach this boy a lesson, to use his power and his influence to publicly humiliate the younger son in order to reconcile the family name. When he let the younger son go with half of the estate, there was a fissure in the family and a fissure in the town. This would be the opportunity for the father to use his power to reconcile his family name back to community, humiliate the younger son in public. That is exactly what an ancient here would have expected in a story like this. But as he always does, Jesus flips the script. The father in Jesus' story uses his power to reconcile his lost son to the family. He shows us what power is for. It's not for self-preservation or to maintain social propriety. No, power according to God is used to give life and to reconcile that which was lost back into the living. How we need that sort of theology in this day and age when people from family leaders 
to government leaders use power to oppress and manipulate. When we have churches that align themselves with certain political parties, be it the right or the left, it doesn't matter. When we align ourselves with the hopes that through this power we can push our agenda or thwart other agendas, we've lost sight of what power is for. The Father in the story shows us that God the Father uses his power to reconcile. And do you think it was a good PR move for the God of the universe to die as a criminal on a Roman cross? Do you think that was dignifying by the world's definition, by my definition of dignity? For Jesus to work through a group of people who are as socially awkward and screwed up as the disciples? Isn't it strange that for the first 300 years of the church, Jesus' followers were looked at with suspicion by the government and thought to be anti-patriotic because they wouldn't bow to the gods of government and they wouldn't serve in the military. But now we're held in suspicion of not being the right kind of Christian if we don't align ourselves to this party or that one. Isn't that odd? What does this story tell us about how God the Father uses his power? Is it to divide or is it to reconcile? Well, instead of allowing his shameful son to come to him, enduring the jeers and the sneers, the stares, the possible stones that would come his way as the town sees this kid coming back, the father goes out to him. Some scholars push this to the point where they think the father's going out to protect the son, to shield him from all of the hatred that the town would put. I I don't know that that's there, but it's a nice thought. And by the way, this is the first of two times that the reconciling father goes out to meet a lost son. At the end of the story, the older son refuses to go into the party that the father has thrown, and there are two shocking details here that an ancient hearer would pick up on. First, the eldest son in ancient Near Eastern families was expected to be the MC or the face of family parties. This was designed to help him network with the community, helping him practice the skills necessary to be the paterfamilias when the father was to die. So it would have been insulting for him not to go into the party and assume his role as MC. Second, the older son publicly questions the father's sense of justice by challenging him in public on the moral validity of receiving this son back. He's basically saying, Dad, you're being immoral by accepting the, my younger brother home. So you see, the older son also brings shame to the father in public. He's rebelling in a different sort of way. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. There are uh, ways that are obviously um, shamefully sinful, but there's other ways that you and I might sin that are socially acceptable, okay? Uh, It's quite on the outside to be a drug addict and have a problem. I mean, it destroys your life. It's quite another thing to be a workaholic and you're getting pats on the back by everybody. I think they're both evil and sinful. (laughs) They both destroy lives. But one of those, right, gets you a pat on the back in our culture, not in every culture. Like what if Jack Johnson on an island had his own government or something like that? Workaholism would be horrible. (laughs) Okay. So 
once again, the father goes out to reconcile a son. The NIV says that the father went out and pleaded with the older son. And you can imagine that the average father in that world didn't do much pleading with their kids, right? Their, their word was law. But here we see the father trying to convince his son to join in the joy of his younger son's return. He's a gentle father who goes to this rebellious older son and he calls him technon, which is child. And he pleads with him. He tries to convince him to come inside. He assures the son that he's noticed his faithfulness, that nothing has changed between them. He pleads him to come in, join the celebration to be reconciled with both the father who overlooks the older son's offense and the younger son. Okay, back to the younger son. The father goes out to meet him, but he doesn't just go, does he? He runs. That's explicit in the text. Now, I don't know what you think of when you picture a paterfamilias or, or when you picture this father in the story. I'm 43 years old. I run all the time. I chase Samara like a tickle monster in the park. She screams and squeals. Or I got grass all over my hair. It's not very dignified looking. The culture in which Jesus has set this story, though, is quite different. The head father of a wealthy family like this would have a long robe covering his ankles. That was essential. It would have to be a long robe covering the ankles. He would have a long beard, probably wouldn't have shaved since puberty, and he probably had a turban on his head. I saw an older Sikh couple walking in town the other day. The woman was gorgeous, had this beautiful um, traditional garb on. Uh, her husband, I'm guessing 60s, maybe a little older, had the white beard, just pristine. The turban looked beautiful and perfect and crisp. And as they're walking, I'm thinking, that's a lot more like the Potter Familius in the story than a dad in a Star Wars shirt running around the park. And in those cultures, older men didn't run. It was beneath them. But in this story, this dignified father runs out to meet the son, and he embraces him. And once again, he chooses not to use his power to protect his own name in the eyes of his peers. Instead, he lowers himself to reconcile his son back to him. Now, notice what he does. The text is explicit. It says he felt compassion he ran and embraced him. Literally, I like this. It says he fell upon his neck and he kissed him. And all this is going on and the son still tries to explain. After all, the son has practiced his coming home speech, his soliloquy over and over again. Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. But when the boy gets home and the father runs out to him, he doesn't get out the whole sentence. Did you notice that? He just gets out the part where he admits he's no longer to be called the father's son. But just before he gets out the words about being a, a servant and all of this stuff, his father cuts him off. The father will have none of it. He doesn't need the boy to do something special. He doesn't need to hear his reasons why he went off and did what he did. He doesn't need to hear him grovel. The motivation to reconcile the son is all internal in who? The father. 
And he calls for the servants to do four things. To put the best robe on him, which is a sign of inclusion in the family, of dignity and status. Instantly, not once the son has explained himself, not once he's paid back the debt, not once he said he's sorry a bunch of times. Instantly. Put a ring on his finger. Undoubtedly, this is a signet ring, a family ring with a crest on it. Think coat of arms, that kind of idea. It shows that the son is now reinstated as an agent of the family. He puts sandals on his feet, uh, actually shoes on his feet. Um, Most people in the ancient world didn't have sandals at all. Some people had sandals. Rich people had shoes. Dignified people had shoes. And so he puts shoes on his feet. And finally, uh, fill the, kill the fattened calf, prepare a celebration. People in those days didn't eat meat very often. A fattened calf is worth 10 times the cost of a goat even. This is a, an extravagant celebratory gift. The father is genuinely full of joy. So I ask myself, I ask you, what does this tell us about the father? He uses his power to reconcile lost children to himself, even at great personal cost. The father takes initiative. The father does the work. Say it again. The father does the work of reconciliation. The son had to make the choice to come home. He had to come to his senses. But once he was on his way home, the father met him there. The father went to him. The father received him. Now, what does this teach us about how the Father relates to us? First of all, I would be remiss if I didn't say I think there's a subtle warning here. The Father doesn't, also doesn't use his power to coerce the Son or to restrain him from leaving in the first place. That should give us pause. The Father respected the Son enough to let him carry out his desires. It takes a lot of love to allow someone the dignity of choice. But be warned, you and I, we can go off the rails. He's not going to intervene in a way that always stops us from doing that. And you and I can make a mess of things. It could have been so much worse for the younger son. Think of what could have happened to him. He could have killed someone. He could have been killed. And there's lots we don't know about. Judging by the description um, that he engaged in loose living, we can only imagine that he probably drank heavily. We don't know that he didn't come back with an addiction, that he used his money to, you know, be with lots of different women, most likely. And so we don't know what kind of wake of destruction relationally. Um, We don't know if he sired any children. We don't know those things. They're not in the story. I'm not trying to make a point. But the point is that God will allow us to go off the rails. Who knows what kind of destruction was in this kid's wake? Who knows how much healing he'll need to undergo and receive, how much reconciliation he'll need to go pursue once he's back in the family and reinstated and has a base and a foundation. You know, that's salvation gets us through the door, reconciled with God, yes, and then there's a lot of work to do, isn't there? Anyone who's had broken relationships in the past come to Christ, well, then we start that long process of being reconciled, of working the steps, right? Is there anything you can't come back from? No. Look at how gracious the Father is. But beware. There are things you wish you didn't have to come back from. You see what I'm saying? 
The second thing we see is a bit of a window into this younger son's thought process. And Henry Nouwen has been so helpful in pointing this out, uh, that the son has practiced his coming home speech, and the father cuts him off before he could spit out the part about returning as a day laborer. There's a sense in which the son has not fully surrendered his life to the father. And instead, he came with a plan. See, he knew he had sinned against God and his father, and he was right to be humbled, but then he thought he was right to declare his own status. Like, Dad, check it out. I know what I did. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but I'll tell you what, I'll come back as a day laborer. He tried to tell his father how to relate to him, to dictate that. And it shows you how he thought about his father. And I think it provides an opportunity for us to think about how we think about God as father. Do we really want his grace, like have him do all the work, or would we rather come to him repentant, but then, hey, God, I've got some solutions. I know how I'll fix my problem. You just tell me it's okay, and then I'll get myself out of the trouble. It's almost as if in our fallen state, we just can't accept grace. It's like we're infected by a virus that keeps rewiring our brains and our emotions to reject the kindness and reconciliation of God. There's always a, a yeah, but, or what about kind of reaction. This week in our Bible study, Jamie Hoger reminded me of how the Roman and Greek gods were so fickle and jealous and insecure and demanding. And it got me thinking about all kinds of mythologies from lots of different cultures and time periods. And it's fascinating to me that when people invent their own gods, they always make them harsher than the father in this story. Did you ever notice that? Or maybe there's a really nice god or goddess in a pantheon, but they're always in some kind of weird relationship web with other people who are really screwed up. But when we invent our own gods, we don't even make them as good as the real God. Why is that? We make ways to work our way into some form of insecure relationship with the gods and goddesses through religious observance or heroic sacrifice so that the average person really has no chance to be righteous. That's not good theology. That's not what Jesus models in his ministry or in this parable. The father that Jesus presents in the story is one who uses his power and authority to reach us in his love. Our father is a reconciling father. Would you pray with me? Maybe you're aware that uh, you need to come home from something. And in this moment of clarity about the goodness and graciousness of father, of the Father, I want to just provide us with a moment of silence to, to come home to him. He really is as good as the scripture is saying.